This show includes strong language and may sometimes feature discussions of difficult or triggering topics. Please check the show notes for content warnings. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Movie Catch-Up, a podcast where two friends work on reducing their movie backlog. Each episode, we catch up on a previously unseen movie recommended by the other. I'm Leanne. And I'm Greg. Do you hear the drums, Fernando? Today, we're talking about the truth about cats and dogs and Muriel's wedding. But before we get into the movies, we thought it would be fun to play a game. So we're going to play a couple rounds of Heads Up. Okay. Uh, so for your category, I've picked Blockbuster Movies. So we'll get into this, and we will see how terrible we do. It's been a while since we've done this regularly. One. Okay. Um, Jordan Peele horror movie. Get uh, out. Yes. Uh, oh boy, passing that for you. Um, oh, this is a movie, it's about an animal that's larger than a pony and, uh, where a bunch of people are fighting. What's a large-scale battle called? War? Yes, and what's a large pony? Horse? Yes, you got it. War horse. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Adam Sandler, he's a child in a large body? Or has it to take care of a child or something? Is this little... It's a little uh, kid in Adam Sandler on the cover. I've never seen it. Am I passing? Oh, pass, yeah. Big Daddy? Uh, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Shit. Uh, the sequel to Sounds of Lambs. Hannibal? Yes. Oh, no time. Oh, A Dog's Purpose. Oh, could have... No, I would, I would not have gotten you to guess Dog's Purpose. <laughs> like, War Horse is great. Uh, so we missed Kong Skull Island, which I passed on because, honestly... Holy cow. Uh, Big Daddy. Isn't that the Adam Sandler one? Am I wrong? No, it is an Adam Sandler movie, but... I only I seen the know, cover. Not... It's one of those things where I think I used to pass it in, like, a video rental store, and I only know it by the cover. I, thought I think it was, I've like, probably a, seen a kid or something. Pieces of it, it on TV. Is it, like, TV. 13 think... going on 30 or something, but he's... No, dude. I think there's a kid that he's, like, taking care of. I'm not... The okay. plot is not well, familiar to me. We got three... <laughs> So we're great at this. Good job. Okay, so the category I've chosen for you is Superstars. Okay. Um, She sings the song um, Pray. Kesha. um, Yes. Or K dollar sign hot. No, you got it. Um, She was on American Idol. No, she was. Yeah, she was. Kelly Clark. No, um, she was also in Smash. She played the Dark Yes. Um, he yep. was the lead actor in Mad Men. His last name was a food. Yep, John Hamm. Yeah, thank you for that clue. <laughs> uh, she is a supermodel, uh, host of Project Runway, and most Fire recently, Banks. wait, no, no, Heidi Klum. Yes, um, you're maybe not going to know this. He's married to no, that's wrong. Sorry, um, that. he was in Follow Boy. Pete Wentz. Oh, yeah, you, you got it, but I passed for you. Sorry. Oh, whatever. Um, she was the actress in The Hunger Games. Jennifer! Something. I'm going to give it to you, then. You know who I'm talking about. <laughs> it's going to see Jennifer Edston. <laughs> That's not right. Jennifer. Oh, gosh. Yeah. We got five on that one. How? <laughs> I'm so bad at this. Oh, wow. That's a fun game. We will have to do more of this off. I was going to say camera, off recording, and get better. 
It's weird not to play in person. Uh, yes. All right, well, let's talk movies, I guess. Yes, yeah. let's do it. Oh, my gosh. Hey. Hey, Mario. I know her. No, you don't. Women like that don't really exist. Yeah, huh? This one exists in my building. Uh, Abby, you've got a caller on line three who says his dog is hysterical. Hi, this is Dr. Abby Barnes. You're on the air. This is Brian from Venice. Hi, Brian. What's up? Well, I've got a dog here that's a bit um, out of sorts. Mm-hmm. And what's wrong with your dog? This is going to sound strange. Mm-hmm. He's wearing roller skates. I see. And how did your dog end up in roller skates? Well, actually, he's not my dog. I got him from the pound this morning. I'm a photographer, and it's all part of the shoot that I'm doing. I thought you said this guy was a professional. Oh, no, no, no. He is a professional. He's just used to dealing with chihuahuas and poodles. It's the dog. This is professional. Everyone, it's going to be fine. We will just stay calm. Okay? You've got to help me here. So for this episode, I asked you to watch the movie The Truth About Cats and Dogs. This movie came out in 1996 and it stars Janine Garofalo, Uma Thurman, Ben Chaplin, Jamie Foxx, and James McCaffrey. Uh, it was directed by Michael Lemon, uh, who directed Heathers, Airheads, 40 Days and 40 Nights. Because I said so, he also directed a number of episodes of the TV show Big Love, The Big C, Nurse Jackie, Dexter, um, a handful of episodes of American Horror Story, as well as True Blood, Californication, and Scream Queens. Damn. Quite a, yeah, quite a storied uh, filmography for him in terms of director credits. Director of Heathers, wow. Yeah. Um, The writer is Audrey Wells, and she wrote the screenplay for George of the Jungle, Under the Tuscan Sun, Shall We Dance, and The Hate You Give. And the tomato meter score for this movie was 85 cent, or sorry, 85% critic and 56% audience, which disappoints me a lot. This is probably one of my very favorite rom-coms, uh, one of my very favorite movies in general. It's just really great. So I hope that you like it. Promise I won't be too upset if you don't, but I hope. This movie was pretty early on for both Uma Thurman and uh, Janine Garofalo's career. Uh, relatively speaking, for Uma Thurman, um, she did this movie shortly after doing Pulp Fiction, and she had a number of large credits to her name before that. And this was actually uh, Janine Garofalo's first lead in a movie uh, after doing quite a lot of TV work. So Abby Barnes is a veterinarian who hosts a radio talk show where she helps befuddled pet owners with their problems with humor and charm. Brian is a photographer who calls into Abby's show when he has problems with a client during a photo shoot, a Great Dane, and a pair of roller skates. Brian is immediately taken with Abby, who is smart and witty, and off the air, he asks what Abby looks like. Thinking this would be the end of their interaction, she describes herself as tall, thin, and blonde, very much of the opposite of her actual look. When Brian attends the radio station to offer his thanks in person, Abby panics and rather than come clean, recruits her neighbor, Noelle, who hits all the notes of the offer description to be her stand-in. Noelle, continuing to act as Abby's in-person proxy as Brian pursues her romantically, begins to develop her own feelings for Brian, who is kind and charming, a direct contrast to her controlling and abusive boyfriend slash manager, Roy. So this movie is actually a bit of a gender-swapped adaptation of the play Cyrano de Bergerac, which actually is referenced in a lot of 
TV and film media, usually there's like one character that's ugly or has a unusually strange facial feature. In the play, he has like a very large nose. And then they end up acting as the proxy where they like tell the other character what to say to this person that they're trying to romance. So that is an element of this story that plays into how it works out. Uh, The big highlights for me in this movie is the fact that it features female friendship. The relationship portion is a bit of a slow burn, which is a big thing for me that I love. And I really like that when everything eventually comes out in the wash, there's a relatively realistic response to the situation from Brian. So uh, what were your initial thoughts on this? Um, (laughs) I liked it for sure. Uh, It's definitely, it wasn't uh, my absolute favorite at points. I think a lot of that comes from just me liking kind of some of the opposite things there. Like I really struggle with the large amount of the plot being that like, Oh, he thinks he's dating this other woman and all this and the mistaken identity of it all. And that kind of leads to that secondhand cringe in me a lot. So I find myself just, Ooh, just wanting, wanting the plot to go forward and for everything to get out in the air because just like the constant dodging and ducking and like always oh, going to find out and everything just makes me really tense. And that's just not like a trope I super love. But apart from that aspect of it, I thought all the characters were really, really good in this movie. That's definitely what carried it for me. I echo the, the sentiments that the female friendship part of this movie was definitely my favorite. I thought that Uma Thurman and Janine Garofalo both killed it. This being fairly early in their careers was interesting because I don't think I've seen either of them return to these kind of roles a lot so much. Like I definitely know them both as being very different than this. Like you see Janine in more roles where she's more snappy and sassy and kind of mean, I would say not more like this rom-com lead, which I really liked. Uma Thurman was great as the the neighbor turned friend turned a co-conspirator. So I definitely liked it overall, but it was, I'm not going to lie, the the cringe aspect of me was high in this one. That's fair. I mean, I think that's probably a pretty consistent thing that comes up in a lot of rom-coms and is maybe why it's not a genre that you particularly enjoy. Because a lot of what makes rom-coms rom-coms is like communication, difficulty, like a lot of problems that would just be easily solved if people stop for two seconds and be like, hey, I think this is happening. Can you please clarify? And then the other person be like, no, you're wrong. And they go, okay. And then the issue was resolved. But of course, you have to drag it out for 90 minutes. Yeah. I think I definitely enjoy the rom-coms that are more about outside forces and circumstance. I think that's probably why I liked the Nicolas Cage one we watched. Uh, It could happen to you. Uh, because there wasn't like a lot of conflict apart from like they're both married and uh, these outside forces kind of keeping them apart. And that did a little bit better than something like this or someone like you, where it was very much Meg Ryan just being really, it was all about Meg Ryan's faults, I guess, in that one that was like holding her back. No, that's Ashley Judd. Ashley Judd. Wrong person. <laughs> yeah. But it was Ashley Judd's holding herself back in that one, right? And stuff like that where it's very, the characters, you just want to scream it up and be like, Ugh, I think I wrote down that, like, I just want to get to the point where the truth comes out because you obviously know everything's going to resolve itself. 
And if you just come out with the truth five minutes into the movie, we wouldn't have had a movie because everything would have just resolved itself. And that those kind of plots yeah. get me. I'm not I think lie. at least this, with this one, like Abby really is holding herself back because the entirety of what act one of the movie, basically yeah. Abby's on the air and Brian has borrowed a dog from the pound to be in a photo shoot with a boy. And they've put the like, classic roller skates, you know, the four wheeled ones on him. And of course, this poor dog has not reacted well to the situation and Brian wants to get the roller skates off to settle him down, but he's having some difficulty. And then following their exchange on the phone, he calls and asks her out on a date and she's flattered, but insecure. And so she lies about her appearance. She describes herself as 5'10", thin and blonde, while she's looking at this picture in a magazine, uh, who we find out shortly after is her neighbor, Noel. And then she stands Brian up. And then he shows up at the radio station to sort of thank her in person. And um, before this, Abby intervenes in an argument between Noelle and Roy, because Noelle is her neighbor. And Noelle also shows up at the radio station at the same time, because Roy breaks Abby's violin bow. And so she's just, it's an apology. She shows up with a new bow for her. And it just kind of is the culmination of things happening all at the same time that Noelle allows Abby to continue this deception before we even get to sort of like the next step, there's at least three or four times where Noelle pushes Abby to clear up the mistake because it's clear that Brian yeah. is into her and that if she is honest about the fact she's like, I was, you know, not sure that you would like me if you saw who I really am. So she really is sort of her own worst enemy throughout the whole thing. And Noelle is really championing her to resolve things and just be happy right out the gate. Yeah, for me, the a lot of it was that I didn't really get a good idea of why she kept it going on so long, really. There wasn't a good reason on a lot of these cases for her not to just come clean with it, in the beginning at least. And then you hit that point where it's the point of no return, like after they had the, the seven-hour phone call where they really kind of click in that moment. And it's that point where she's hit that point of no return where it's like, I've gone too far with this. But before that, like you said, there was these all these moments where Noelle is kind of pushing her and she's so adamant that no one would want to date someone who looks like her type of thing. And they're all looking for someone who looks like Noelle. And this movie does a lot to try and paint out Abby and Janine Garofalo as, I don't know, not attractive for some reason. It was very weird. I know this is another big trope where it's like a pretty conventionally attractive woman. And then you've got Uma Thurman. And then it's like, well, we're just going to pretend that Janine Garofalo is ugly or something at this point. Yeah. Because they make a lot of references to it in the movie. And it's like, well, she's pretty gorgeous. Like she's, yeah, she's not the... Like you're saying, the, what it's based on, it's not like she's got the massive nose or something that, like, she's not got this huge mole on her face, some uh, deformity or something. She's very attractive. Yeah. And people are constantly making reference to her lack of attractiveness. And at every stop, there's always a guy, like, catcalling Noelle or something, or people are, like, falling upon themselves. The one great scene where the guy on the bike basically like cat calls her or something and then isn't looking and almost gets killed, like running into traffic yeah. on his bike. And he tries to show off for her by doing like a wheelie on his bike and then almost gets hit by a car. Uh, a lot of the uh, critic reviews that I was reading when I was putting my notes together, uh, talked about the fact that, you know, Janine Garofalo's character is supposed to be this unattractive, undesirable person, but it's a difficult thing to buy because she is like, she is a beautiful woman. And again, you know, that's a very common thing in almost all movies, regardless of genre, where 
in order to have like an ugly woman you basically like put her hair in a ponytail and slap some glasses on her so it also reminds me of i think it was you see their tv show or the tv movie i think vanessa hudgens was in it beastly where it's supposed Mm -hmm. to be beauty and the beast and he's supposed to be like hideous but he's got like a weird tattoo or something and he's still like got a six-pack and it's like okay sure you got a weird tattoo it's like hollywood really likes likes to to push this narrative that if basically if you're not uma thurman you might as well go kill yourself it's like wow this is great i mean how many (laughs) (laughs) rom-coms are out there where you know you have the makeover scene and the makeover scene is literally just taking her hair out of a ponytail and taking some glasses off and like oh, look how beautiful you are. Like, you did nothing. The weird thing for me is that they almost were trying to, like, dumb down how beautiful Uma Thurman was in this movie. Half the movie, I feel like she was wearing that weird, shapeless, ugly, purple print dress thing that, like, was super unflattering, even for the 90s. Like, this was like not I a think- super flattering dress, and... She was wearing that for a lot of the movie, and I'm just like, you know. I think part of that sure. just comes from the fact that she's not rich. Like, she talks of when she goes to buy the yeah. bill for Abby, she says, you know, there's like a scale of cost, and I got the low one because that's all I could afford. And like, she's a model, so if she has nice clothes, it's probably because she gets them from a modeling gig. But also, uh, I think part of it is also the implication that her character is anorexic or has an an eating disorder because she's out with Abby and she orders a thing and Abby goes, Oh, aren't you going to eat that? She just goes, Oh no, I don't eat. She's like, I love to order, but I don't eat. So it might have just been a way of like camouflaging a body insecurity, but you really have to kind of read that That into. That would have been a very interesting subplot if they'd gone more into that. Yeah. I don't think it would have made sense to do that in terms of like what this story was doing, but I agree that if we wanted to Mm. sort of flesh out things a little bit. It would have been interesting to give the whole angle that even though everyone else thinks, Oh, Noelle's this gorgeous one. And there couldn't ever be anything wrong with Noelle because she's so beautiful. And that whole aspect of like, well, just because outwardly and all this, she can still be struggling with things like eating disorders and all this other stuff. Yeah. And I mean, she's also in this terrible relationship with Roy, who is her, her manager and also her boyfriend. And he treats her like shit and he calls her stupid and, ugly and like all of these awful names and she just puts up with it because she thinks that she can't do better which is one of the reasons that despite her efforts to push abby to just fess up to what's going on that she has difficulty when it's her turn to make that a thing like there's a scene uh in the middle of the movie where they're like okay what's gonna happen is i'm gonna be on air and you're gonna go to brian's place and he's gonna be like hey aren't you supposed to be on the radio? And then be like, oh, surprise, here's like actually what's going on. But because he calls her smart and he, you know, treats her kindly and he feeds her food, you know, she feels valued. And so she has difficulty, you know, wanting to break that perception of her. Yeah. And I really like how throughout the movie, though, um, Noelle and Abby's friendship is really what drives their change and their growth in their characters. Mm-hmm. They have such a good dynamic together. I like that it starts with their their first interaction when uh, she kind of saves her. Abby saves Noelle from Roy outside her apartment when they're having this big argument. That's when the violin string gets broken and all that. Mm-hmm. And it's off to a real bumpy start at first. <laughs> Noelle kind of says to her, uh, gotta have a boyfriend, don't you? Otherwise, it's just you and a cat. And next thing you know, 40 candles on your birthday cake. <laughs> and I just yeah. went. 
wow. <laughs> <laughs> also, that kind of sounds good to me. So, but uh, <laughs> it clearly stung Abby very hard, and they got off to quite a bumpy start from there. And it was it was nice seeing them kind of connect throughout the course of the movie, and that was definitely the main focus for me. And it was a nice kind of pairing to the next movie we're going to be talking about, Muriel's Wedding, which, again, is very female friendship-centric. Yeah. I like that Abby, like, she had a moment where she wasn't sure she wanted to intervene on what was going on. Yeah. But, you know, there's the this whole female solidarity. You know, Roy is calling uh, Noel a dumb bitch. And Abby comes and she goes, did you call me? And he goes, no. And he's like, who the fuck are you? She said, oh, you said dumb bitch, so I just assumed that you were talking to me. And, um... Uh, there's sort of this bonding moment where it's like, oh, you're a dumb bitch too. Like there's so many of us out there. And that becomes the foundational point of their friendship. And I just, since so many rom-coms, especially like someone like you, where the dynamic between the friends is like, love is garbage and men are the worst, blah, blah, blah. Like this movie is not that at all. And I really appreciated that because I don't think there are a ton of romantic comedies out there where that friendship dynamic sort of fits that uh, particular criteria. I'm sh- I'm probably wrong about that. I'm sure I've seen other ones, but nothing immediately comes to mind. Well, I guess we should also probably talk about the actual rom-com part of this and Brian, who we haven't really talked about yet. Uh, Brian was an interesting one for me. I, I liked Brian. First of all, he was very cute. He was well cast. I really did like his chemistry with both of them, actually. Like, his chemistry with... Uh, Noel and with Abby is quite good and a lot of this movie was just me kind of screaming like just become a thruple that is the clear answer here oh you mean like almost every uh, rom-com ever <laughs> yeah <laughs> well there's even the one great point where Noel tries to comfort Abby at the one point and just goes I'd fuck you yeah <laughs> that was great um, so I'm just in the back of my mind like you know he seems interested in both of you <laughs> you kind of see bitch just in each other this would solve the whole movie yeah No, the fact that Brian was able to um, connect with Abby on like an intellectual level, and then he was able to connect with Noelle because he's a photographer and she's obviously like very comfortable in front of the camera, but she's also kind of got this effervescent personality that just draws people in. It really was a good dynamic for them both. The whole scene of the three of them, basically when uh, Noelle and Abby decide the best way to solve this is if we just all go over to his apartment and get drunk and see what happens. That whole scene was really good because there was this back and forth tension between all of them where Brian's focus would be on Abby for a minute and then Noel. And what I really liked about that scene is that you saw Noel, who's clearly got more of the attention of Brian, really trying to help Abby out and feeling bad about when the attention is all on her. And meanwhile, Abby is getting very frustrated every time Brian kind of pays more attention to her. You could tell that Noel is interested in Brian on some level, mm-hmm. for sure, and is struggling with like trying to do the right thing for her friend and give up on all that, which she eventually does. The, the scene ends with uh, Brian and Noel kind of going upstairs to bed and Abby leaving the party early. It turns out that Noel uh, basically immediately turned around and said, no, this isn't right, and left, and then stopped well, talking to him. Well, she describes it as they were getting uh, into it, and he kept saying Abby's they name. They were getting into it, yeah. And, you know, it was like it was so clear that he wanted to yeah. be with Abby, and she wasn't that, and it felt wrong for her to sort of continue with that as a betrayal to this this woman that she's fast becoming very close to, yeah. despite her own feelings. So it was a really good scene. Can we just... Uh, <laughs> talk for, for sure. a moment about the additional lie that abby tells 
So following the the early scene where the, everybody is at the radio uh, oh. station, Brian invites yeah, I know uh, what you're getting. Abby, a.k.a. Noelle, out for drinks. And so Noelle brings the real Abby with her so that they can fess up. And Abby chickens out. She lies. And she introduces herself as Donna. And when he asks Donna what she does, she says that she's a goat farmer and that she makes cheese. And this is just the most ridiculous lie, but he buys it and it just plays out through the rest of the movie. And I love it a lot. It leads to another plot point I noted down, which is uh, Brian being dumb, (laughs) because there are so many red flags in this whole dynamic between Noelle and Abby that he can't figure out. Yeah, he's not reading the signs very well, which is actually kind of endearing at points. Uh, like, he buys into this this uh, goat cheese farmer thing way too easily. It's kind of great. Yeah. I love the recurring element of that. It was very funny every time it came up. I was thinking about a negative of this sort of as an obvious thing is the fact that Abby has a very distinctive voice because she's a radio personality. And, like, Abby as Donna clearly has the same voice but he doesn't make this connection until literally they spell it out for him and i figure the reason why this happens is essentially like the superman effect right where it's like clark kent and superman look exactly the same minus the glasses but because you're not wanting to see it you don't so it's like, obviously, donna and abby sound like the same person and obviously abby and noelle don't sound the same, but because he's physically attracted to the visual of Noelle, and that's what he was told she looked like, he's willing to sort of ignore the very obvious signs until the end. He straight up says to Noelle, after him and Abby had the seven-hour conversation, that he goes and actually sees Noelle, who he thinks is Abby, and he straight up says, you were a different person on the phone last night than you are today, and he just keeps making references to it. He's like, oh, you sound different. Oh, you don't have the same interests all of a sudden today. Like he keeps pointing out all these things and it's like, okay, Brian, Um, actually the scene with the seven hour phone call, um, that whole thing about pickles on tuna sandwich. I am pretty sure that this movie and that scene in particular was instrumental to my inclusion of relish in my tuna salad. Ever since I will always put relish or pickles or something in my tuna. It's definitely a result of this movie. So in a weird way, thank you for this culinary addition to my life. That scene that we've talked about a couple times, the the first phone call scene there really like changed my view on the movie, I think, a lot. It really helped me buy into the relationship and the whole concept of the movie. And it's maybe because I've had some of those experiences before where like talking to someone that I've only really talked to online, but then you have these conversations that like are so deep and personal and intimate and it can really spark something. And that was a good example of it. And I love the side by side of them where they're like in the bath together or not together. They're in the bath separate, but at the same time on the phone, the cat watching uh, Abby and the dog watching Brian and like the little parallels back and forth. And you could tell that it was taking place over a long period of time but like it just doesn't feel like that and you just feel like you're in the same room with this person even though you're very far apart they like really captured that element of it so they also well. have phone sex that's a pretty important element that we shouldn't overlook oh yeah that's it which was hilarious i think ryan was right about when abby tries to get out of it 
And he says, you know, if we don't do it now, then it's never going to happen. Because at that point, they'd been talking for so long and there was such a an air of intimacy that they'd already established that to shatter that would definitely make it difficult to find a return. But super awkward. I will say oh, yeah. uh, one thing that I liked about that scene, which might sound weird to say, is it's so unusual to see a woman experience any sort of sexual satisfaction on screen. So, I mean, like, we didn't see have an orgasm, but we know that, like, it happened. So, another weird positive for me. One thing I found myself thinking a lot through this whole thing that I wanted to mention, and we've talked about this many times, uh, especially in our 90s movies, is how the plot just kind of, like, wouldn't work in 2020. I was thinking about that today as well, yeah. It's just like the idea that you could be a famous radio personality and not have easily accessible access to what you look like on all the internet, social media, all these other things. The fact that even there would be this radio show, which I'm sure there's not a lot of call-in vet shows anymore, considering now people, if they have a question, just go online and... Google what's wrong with my dog. Like so many of the people calling in, which I thought was cute was, were clearly people who were like, I don't want to go to the vet. What's the next best thing. Let's call this person the radio. So she could tell me, I don't need to go to the vet. Oh crap. I need to go to the vet. Like just vets are expensive. Right. So your first reaction is before I go, let me Google it quickly. I mean, but both of you and I are pet owners. I have a cat, you have a dog and you, you know, the stress you feel when your pet is not acting the way they normally do, but you're not sure if it's something that warrants a vet visit, partly yeah. because it's expensive, but at the same time, you know, it's an un- it's an unnecessary stress for your pet to have to, like for the cat, put her in a kennel, put her in the car, like drive her there, have her poked and prodded at, and then oh, for you sure. know, nothing is really wrong. And especially with cats where you know, they tend to hide what's wrong with themselves. And like Napoleon, yeah. for you, you know, he hates being in the car. So it's just like a whole stressful thing to be like, I'm not sure if my pet needs to go. It's just funny that in 1996, I'm sure like calling into a radio vet was much more a thing than 2020, where it's like your instant reaction is just to go to Google now. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if I would necessarily call into the talk show because there's that one woman who gets rushed off the air right away and she is like, hey, I've been on hold for 45 minutes. Like, yeah. really, at that point, just call your vet. Like, if it's a simple behavioral question, I'm sure that they can answer for it over the phone at no cost. Um, but yeah. But just this idea that, like, well, Brian would go and Google her immediately or try and add her on Facebook or, like, the levels you'd have to go through in 2020 to hide your identity like that is insane, especially as like yeah. a somewhat famous radio personality who's getting tons of fan mail. Yeah. At the same time, though, there are a lot of radio personalities out there that I don't know what they look like. If you Google but them, you'd if find I out. Wanted, yeah. Yeah. If I, if I really wanted to know, I could find out. But, you know, offhand. And the whole idea is that, like, he falls in love with her before he sees her and and this whole thing. But, like, if you call into that the vet and you're kind of interested in her, the first thing you'd probably do is go online, like, oh, what's she look like before I'm going to call her to a date type of thing. You know, mm-hmm. people are superficial. He's going to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, speaking of that first call in, when so he calls in with the, the whole, he's the photographer, this dog is on roller skates, that whole thing. And then he calls back later after getting the advice and deciding to keep the dog. And I was just wondering like why she decided to just ghost him. Like 
she gives the description of her neighbor or the person she sees on the calendar. Like, oh, go, oh, well, yeah, we'll meet at this place at five, look for five foot ten blonde woman type thing and hangs up. Like, why not just say no? Like, why decide to ghost him at that point? It just seemed cruel. And I didn't really understand why she would do that instead of just say no. I don't know. I think part of it is because she wanted to reciprocate. Yeah. But it's not. Yeah, I agree. It's not clear. I mean, it wouldn't make sense for this movie for her to just say no. And then we would have no movie. I guess. I just don't like things like that. Like so many movies, if they take logical actions, then the movie just kind of falls apart. You can just write a reason in why she would ghost him. I don't know. Just one of those things that just bugged me a little bit. Came back to it a few times during the movie. Like, that was really cruel that first time. It's not unusual for people to stand people up on dates. Yeah. It happens all the time. So It wasn't like a, we're in person and I'm giving you a fake number because I want to ghost you. It's like, you're in a phone with some random person who called in asking you on a date after hearing your name on the radio, I'd just be like, no, okay, thanks, bye, and hang up. It's less effort, even. But I get what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, she could have said no, and he still could have shown up at the radio station anyway. Which he does. <laughs> he does. Which I guess could have... <laughs> after she gets stood yeah. up, the whole thing is that he does show up randomly yeah. at the radio station. So it's after the very bad plan to just get drunk and see what happens. Noelle ends up getting a job that requires that she be out of town for a little while, and things are quiet. And during this time, she and Abby, their relationship is kind of on pause, but you get Noelle calling like almost every day, you know, begging her to please talk to her. She doesn't want to lose this friend that she's made. She doesn't want this guy to get between them. And ultimately they do. And it's really good. And Noelle ends up being the one to come up with the plan that ultimately lays everything bare to Brian. You know, she says, be at my place at this time. And she knows that she's not going to be there because she has an audition and that it's going to be Abby at home. And it's kind of a funny scene where Abby's still trying to draw out the deception by pretending that, you know, Abby is in the bath and she's just there. But then, you know, Noel walks in and he kind of eventually is able yeah. to put the pieces together. And he doesn't take it particularly well, which I think is the right reaction. Because I think it's, I'm not sure exactly what the timeline is. But I think this probably happens over the course of at least a month, I would say, um, just based. I would say that's probably about right. Yeah, it's it's not clear. But I think for the amount of time that Noelle is away and sort of the, the estimated time based on other events, probably over a month. So he's had a lot of time to spend with Abby and with Abby, quote unquote, Abby, and really, you know, develop deep feelings for her and then to find out that. You know, they've kind of been playing him. He he takes it like they've been playing a cruel joke on him, which is perhaps not an incorrect way to read how he's been treated. And everybody feels real shit about it, as they should, because it's definitely a situation that could have been resolved very quickly. It could have been like a haha, sorry, I just was nervous about dating a listener or I'm insecure about my appearance and I wasn't sure that you were going to like me. Or whatever. Yeah. And in the end, you know, Brian also continuing the trend throughout this movie of people creating these little scenarios to embarrass or whatever. He sends the dog, this great Dane, which he named Hank, which is such a good name for this dog. He's such a Hank. Anyway, uh, he sends Hank to the recording studio with a bag. And inside the bag is a pair of roller skates, most likely the same roller skates that Hank was wearing at the beginning of the movie. 
and instructions to put them on and not ask any questions. And Hank pulls Abby in the roller skates all through town to meet Brian in the park. And he's kind of resigned himself to the fact that regardless of what happened, he's got genuine feelings for her. Hank misses her. The night that they were on the phone, Abby makes a comment about, oh, I wish you were here too. And he goes, okay, and hangs up. And the next thing she knows, he's outside her apartment, which of course is another great scene of ensuing panic, trying to disguise the fact that she is not Noelle in appearance. And he asks her to throw him something she's been wearing recently. And she throws him one of her Converse sneakers, which I think is such a good item of clothing. Obviously not what he was expecting. But, you know, it's something that smells like her, something that the dog would definitely get tied to. Oh, you know, Hank's been missing you. And it's just a really cute end to the movie. I cried. Yeah, I really do love these setups where someone has to come to the other person and that there's like some element of like humility that's involved or humiliation, um, however heart-wrenching. And I made a note for myself that the movie Never Been Kissed, like exemplifies this quite a lot. Another movie that also makes me cry. Well, Another movie I've never seen. We'll just add it to the list. <laughs> we'll have to. Yeah, for me, I really thought I knew how this movie was going to end. I was so sure he was going to call into the show and have a big dramatic moment where he talked about his quote-unquote dog, but he was really talking about himself. And maybe he'd talk about a cat that's really about her and hit this whole analogy Maybe it would he would like try and figure out I don't know. I thought that the truth about cats and dogs, which is her radio show's name, I thought they might try and make some grand statement about the truth about cats and dogs where it's like guys and girls or something. But I just really thought he was gonna call into the radio station and have this whole contrived thing where he talks about his dog but he's really talking about himself. But I guess that works better if he's asking for forgiveness rather than her being the one that needs to be forgiven. And I do like how it ended up. The callback to the beginning of the movie was cute. I like the, the their whole conversation in the park there at the end. It was a really cute ending. Yeah. Overall, I think one of the other benefits of this movie is that the pacing is really well done. It's like there's not a lot of places where it feels like the story is dragging. Um, in terms of scenes where we kind of play into the Serrano de Bergerac story. There's when Brian shows up and Noel is in the booth at the desk. And so he thinks that she's Abby, but Abby is underneath the desk. And so she's telling Noel what to say to get rid of him. And then um, one of the times that they're at Brian's apartment, his, I don't, I'm not really sure what the character's name is Ed played by Jamie Foxx. I'm not really sure what his relationship is there. I think they're just friends and maybe a business associate. Yeah. That was never super explained. He's just kind of there. Have you seen? Yeah. I think they work together, but it's not really clear. Anyway, he shows up quote unquote unexpectedly uh, with his niece who has a turtle. And there's a scene where Abby and Nicole like go into another room and Abby like tells Nicole what she needs to do to treat this uh, turtle since she's supposed to be a veterinarian. And yeah, so I love that. You want me to stick my finger up a turtle's ass? It's <laughs> great. In terms of creatures that you could stick your finger up their butt, like a turtle is pretty, pretty tame, I think. If yeah. it was like a cat or a dog, like I would maybe understand some resignation there, but a turtle is. I don't know. Basically, he was just like to poke his tail so that his head would come out the other side. Uh, going back to the ending, for me, I kind of had a different 
ending in mind where I thought it would have ended a little better. And this is maybe for me because I just finished watching Muriel's Wedding. And I kind of, I don't know, my idea for the ending was more ending it on the scene where Noelle and Abby are on the beach together at the end. And they have their reconnecting moment. And Noelle says basically like I just wanted my friend back and like I didn't want him and like this whole idea that like why are we fighting over this boy kind of thing and they just have this beautiful moment on the beach together where they reconnect and this is right after we get or maybe it's right before we get the scene where um Abby goes to the bar to confront Brian and give him his coat back and basically explain herself and that scene ends with Brian saying to or her saying to Brian I didn't feel confident you'd give me a chance. And he says back, now we'll never know then, will we? Mm -hmm. And I just wrote, and end. They don't get together. She screwed the things up or whatever. And like, it ends with Abby and Noelle's friendship instead of them getting together. And the whole thing is that Abby spent all this time trying to con him because she didn't feel confident. And maybe it would have turned out differently if she had just come out from the beginning. But like Brian says, I guess we'll never know now because what you did to me, I can't forgive. And he moves on, she moves on. And it ends with uh, Abby and Noelle's friendship being front and center. I thought that could have been cute. Different movie for sure. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that. Um, I saw this quote from uh, Janine Garofalo about the movie following its release. And she said, I think it's soft and corny and the soundtrack makes you want to puke. And everybody's dressed in Banana Republic clothing. The original script and the original intent was very different than what it wound up being when it became a studio commercial film. It was originally supposed to be a small budget independent film where there would be much more complexity to all the characters. And Abby and the guy don't wind up together at the end. (sighs) Oh, I love it. So, yeah. Yeah, for sure. As we know, no. movies could be I, very yeah. different if they're edited just a little bit differently. So it could have been uh, a very different movie. I just movie. saw that, that splitting off parallel universe thing where it's like, this is the one movie where it ends them getting together. And this over here is how the movie would have gone if they didn't get together. Mm-hmm. And you know me, I'm just cynical and jaded and love friendship more than I love love. No, and- I definitely prefer stories about like female friendship 100% and that's one of the reasons why I love this movie so much because it really is a yeah. very central part of the story. That last scene with them on the beach really got me. So any final thoughts on this? My other thing I wrote down is that a good ending would be that Brian turns out to be a superficial jerk and that he couldn't accept Abby for just her looks and it turns out the real, this is basically the same thing, the real prize at the end was the friendship they formed type of thing. You know, some guys are just that superficial, and it just turned out, yeah, he just, he couldn't get over that fact. It's like, I don't know, that would have been probably way too mean and not super fun to watch, though. I did think the ending, as was, was really cute. I agree. I didn't cry up or tear up or anything, but I did give, like, a little awe, like, it was cute, and it was good. Yeah, I think if the movie ended with him saying, yeah, I am that superficial, that would have been a very interesting subversion of the genre. Yeah. I also thought we were going to get a last shot of her on her radio show telling us the truth about cats and dogs as a nice little wrap up of the bow or something. What is the truth about cats and dogs? I think I wrote that at some point, too. What is the truth about cats and dogs? And I think I wrote down truth about cats and dogs is that they're annoying. I think to myself as I sit down to write these notes and Napoleon is whining. (laughs) They're needy and they miss you when you're not around. That's really the truth. So where would you put this on our ketchup scale? Perfect as is. Could use ketchup or douse it. 
Yeah, I think I would give this one, honestly, a perfect as is, even though it's not my kind of go-to genre of movie with the mistaken identity cringe in there. But that said, like all that part of it was done really well and there wasn't a lot in there I would necessarily change. I could see an argument for a different ending for sure. Like uh, like you were saying, Janine was talking about that would have been an interesting take on it. But for this take, I thought they did a really good job and it's definitely a movie I could see myself watching again in the future with some popcorn. Yeah, for an hour and 30 and what it was, like I had a good time. Yeah, I definitely think that it is perfect as is. I was a little bit surprised when I was watching it that it still holds up. A couple of the other movies that I asked you to watch, I didn't feel like the story held up quite as well from when it was released, like even if it was an early 2000s movie. Just felt like it didn't age very well. But with this movie, I didn't feel that way, other than the fact that, you know, if you really wanted to know what a radio personality would look like, it would be easy to find out uh, these days. For the most part, it's not a movie where I feel like there was anything sort of really questionable or problematic. And it was just a good, solid movie, something that I still really love and enjoy and would be happy to return to. What are you doing? Nothing. Why didn't you tell me you were going to marry Tim? Who? Tim Sims, your fiancé, the one who wants to shoot you. No, 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 just a minute. You can't come in here and threaten brides. I don't care how unfortunate you are. Fuck off. What is going on, Mario? I've seen your wedding album. You've tried on every dress in Sydney. That doesn't mean I'm getting married. What else does it mean? I want to get married. I've always wanted to get married. If I can get married, it means I've changed. I'm a new person. How? Because who'd want to marry me? Tim Sims. There is no Tim Sims. I made him up. In Paul spit, no one would even look at me. But when I came to Sydney and became Mario, Bryce asked me out. And that proves I'm already different than I was. And if someone wants to marry me, I'm not her anymore. I'm me. Her? Muriel! Muriel Heslop! Stupid, fat and useless! I hate her! I'm not going back to be her again! So for my pick this week... I had you watch Muriel's Wedding. Uh, This is a 1994 movie directed by PJ Hogan, uh, also written by. uh, He did other things such as My Best Friend's Wedding, Confessions of a Shopaholic, and the 2003 version of Peter Pan, which I have not seen. A couple other things as well, but those were some of my notable picks. Uh, So this one got a 78% on the tomato meter with an 84% audience score. Um, some of the the main notable leads from this being Tony Collette as Muriel and Rachel Griffiths as Rhonda, both uh, very early on in their careers here. The kind of general rundown here would be that Muriel's wedding focuses on Muriel Heslop from Porpoise Spit, a small town in Australia, and her aspirations to get married and move to the big city so she can leave her old life and old self behind. So I picked this one for you. I've been wanting to do this one for a while just because it's a movie that I saw pretty early on in my formative life and really just stuck with me. And I've seen it a few times since. And every time I seem to get something new out of it and it has a new meaning to me, it's also one of the main reasons I'm obsessed with ABBA. This is kind of my introduction, I think, to ABBA was through this movie and then going on to various other things such as Mamma Mia and all that. But this was definitely one of the main ways I found out who ABBA was and my current obsession with them. 
So what did you think overall? I liked it. I love Toni Collette. Of course. Of course, because she's great. A lot of familiar faces from Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, particularly uh, Bill Hunter, who plays uh, her dad, Bill Heslop. My big thing is I hate movies where parents just constantly berate their kids and like tell them how terrible and useless they are because it's so uncomfortable to watch, which of course is the point. But it was just like such a major part of this movie. And of course, that really ultimately plays into the way that Muriel is and the way that she acts, which, of course, she eventually realizes come the end of the movie. But um, more than anything, it was really the characters that did it for me in this one. Like, I really loved Rhonda. I had a hard time with Muriel until sort of the end when she has sort of like an insight into herself. I didn't dislike her, but she is a difficult character initially. And I felt so much for her mother. So just like every time she was on screen and I just felt so bad for her. Yeah. But overall, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. I've heard this, that echo, that sentiment echoed from other people that Muriel is a difficult character. I've heard everything ranging from like detestable and like just to just straight dislike and hate and all these other things. And I've heard all the way to the exact opposite too. And I'm definitely on the opposite. Like from the start, I really love Muriel the whole time. Everything she's doing, there's a lot of not so great things she's doing. So throughout the movie, she essentially, she starts off and we find out when she's at this wedding, she's attending that she shoplifted her dress. She is constantly struggling with her family and her parents wanting her was mainly her dad wanting her to get a job, make something of herself, calling her ugly and useless. Her friends that she has doing the same thing, essentially they just dump her for not being fashionable and cool enough for them. And Muriel kind of takes this all in and internalizes it. And she starts habitually lying, stealing, trying to put on these personas and become someone else trying to escape who she is essentially. And so much of what Muriel does through this whole movie was just so relatable to me. And when I first watched this movie in many uncomfortable ways, it's like looking into that mirror. You don't really want to acknowledge the things you see in Muriel that you see in yourself because Muriel's it's very similar to the recent ContraPoints video that we both watched, right? Where it's, you just Mm -hmm. see things in this person. And at first you just kind of want to lash out against that. And I've really learned over the years of watching this movie, few more times to accept Muriel and to love Muriel because so much of that is me. I've really struggled with my own parents' views on myself and my own views of myself and this idea, this thinking that you're worthless and that you need to do this A, B, C, and D to like become someone essentially. Like Muriel's whole thing is that she really wants to get married, to move out, to change her name, to wear these nice clothes, to do all these things to become someone other than her, to just escape herself. And that was very relatable for me, a lot of it. Yeah, I was thinking after uh, I had finished watching it that one of the barriers for Muriel to thrive is that she's never really tasked with taking responsibility for any of her own actions because her father is a city councillor. And so he has a good amount of influence throughout town. So when she gets arrested at the wedding for shoplifting, he gets very buddy-buddy with the police officers. They give him a case of beer and they leave and she suffers no consequences for it. And also she just lives in her father's shadow. You know, he talks so much about, oh, I paid all of this money for her to go to secretarial school and she can't even type. And the only reason why she got her diploma is because I paid for it. But like, we don't know if that's true. And also... We don't necessarily know how 
Muriel would have done had she not had her very influential father, you know, exerting his influence to make sure that she passed, basically to make sure that his money wasn't wasted, which is what he was implying is what happened. But the fact that she got her certificate at the end meant that, you know, in his view, it wasn't, although she's not using it. And I could relate a lot to just the vibrant change in Muriel when she moves out of her small tourist trap town to the big city. Uh, Not that I have personally done this, but I know that moving out of your parents' house just really changes your relationship with your parents and your family in general and just has such a positive influence on your own self-perception and your all of those related things. So to witness the change in her from the time that she leaves Corpus Spit to go to Sydney is just like, yeah, absolutely. Like getting out of your small town and getting out from underneath your father's thumb and your father's influence and all of that, it really is transformative. For sure. And a lot of that, too, I think what the movie tries to say, too, uh, with some of that is that it's not just leaving. Like, it wasn't leaving alone that did that to me earlier. Obviously, like, just her getting out wasn't enough. Like, her checking off any of the things off her list wasn't really going to change who she was. And what I think we're led to believe is that a lot of it is Rhonda who changes her and the relationship she makes with her. So just kind of catch up how we introduce Rhonda to here. So essentially... After attending this wedding at the beginning of her fake friends who then dump her, um, her dad is on her case and her dad basically has this family friend, Deidre, who runs a cosmetic company similar to... Um, like a Mary Kay kind like of Like a thing. Mary Kay, exactly. Uh, is going to get a job for Muriel at this company she runs. And so her mom is tasked to write her essentially a blank check to give to Deidre in exchange for, I guess, her getting this job or something, I think we're led to believe. Usually there's like an initial kit that you have to buy when you join these types of things, like for Avon or whatever, you have to buy a certain amount of product that you sell and then you earn a commission off of the sale. Uh, But instead, Muriel takes the blank check, which is just written out to cash, as she asks her mom to do, and gets a whole bunch of money from her dad and uses it to go on this vacation that her friends were taking behind her back Muriel kind of finds out they were all going to go on this vacation without her because mm-hmm. she's boring and ugly and doesn't fit their image and all this. And it was a, that's a really crushing scene to maybe talk about. But um, Muriel ends up going on this vacation as well, bumps into those friends there. It's real awkward. They throw a drink at her. They scream at her for stalking them. But then the big changing point in the movie is we meet Rhonda, who's also he- happens to be here is another person that Muriel went to high school with, also dropped out of high school, just like Muriel. And they reconnect and quickly through this vacation become very fast friends. And it is evident very early upon them meeting that they have this extreme bond and closeness and that Rhonda really brings something different out in Muriel that Muriel maybe necessarily didn't know she had in herself. I think a big example of that and my favorite scene in the whole movie uh, this is the iconic scene in the movie, really, is the Waterloo uh, dance number. Oh, it's so good. Essentially, there's like a talent competition and Muriel and Rhonda enter and they sing and do a full choreography, just like the music video to the Abba song Waterloo. And this is right after Rhonda has helped uh, Muriel confront her old friends goes up to um, Tanya, who got married. And basically, Muriel saw Tanya's husband cheating with one of the other four members of Muriel's old friend group. Uh, Rhonda goes up and says, hey, yeah, that friend right there sucked your husband's cock on your wedding. Uh, And it 
there's this whole fight. It's great. So during this Waterloo number, it's this contrasting thing where Muriel and Rhonda are starting to get really into this number. At first, Muriel's really timid. And then you see these four friends, one of them with a black eye from getting punched out from Tanya after finding out that she cheated on her husband. And then there's just this huge brawl is going on during this whole musical number while the musical number just like starts to build and build and Muriel starts to get into it and get into it. And you just see her confidence come alive for like the first point in the movie. It was really I good. I think part of the reason why she suddenly gets so confident is while all of this is going on, Tanya, who was the woman that got married at the beginning of the episode, is like glaring daggers at Nicole, who's the friend who's been having an affair with her husband. And like at the midpoint of the performance, Tanya just fucking flips the table and launches herself at Nicole. And so while they're performing, there's just this absolute cat fight happening right in front of the stage. And I think Muriel is just kind of, she's living because she's doing this performance and it's going well, but also she's just like watching these girls who have been so terrible to her for so long, just like falling apart in front of her. And she's having, you know, this moment of, uh, schadenfreude because like why wouldn't you honestly i loved the scene because the juxtaposition of the high energy abba music with these two women just beating the shit out of each other uh is, is great it's very entertaining it was great and you just see how much of a spitfire Rhonda is and how she brings a lot of that out from muriel and you just see how like a, a friendship like that can really bring out something in someone that they didn't know they had, which I loved seeing. The scene before this, too, where Rhonda helps Muriel confront these four girls, and they're trying to pull Rhonda away from Muriel. Like, oh, Rhonda, come hang out with us. Oh, you're all alone. And then Rhonda, you know, spills the beans about the cheating and then goes, oh, by the way, I'm not alone. I'm with Muriel. Uh, and then just turns away. And it's such a great scene such a great moment and just like uh, i just love Rhonda so much and rachel griffiths is a favorite of mine she's in the tv show brothers and sisters that i loved that no one else seemed to watch but i loved and she's great in that too and just her and tony have this great energy together that just really like it's hard to away from. Yeah, she's definitely a focal point in the movie. One thing I really liked about the scene where um, Tanya and the other girls are like, oh, come have a drink with us, is because in the scene just before this, Rhonda is going on about how terrible they were to her in school and how yeah. they just like treated her like shit. And it's just a really good example of the two-facedness of these girls. Because later on in the movie, after they've basically told Muriel, we don't want you to hang out with us anymore. We have a certain look. People invite us to parties because they know that we're going to have a good time. You're not fashionable. You listen to our music from the 70s, which is like a stupid reason to like not be friends yeah. with someone, honestly. This is the 90s. Well, there's one band that they mentioned. I was like, is that a real band? I forgot to look them up, like Animal yeah. something or other. That scene was so heartbreaking for me because you have yeah. Muriel turn back to them and say in tears, I know I'm not normal, but I'm trying to change and trying to become more like you. And that was like a dagger to my heart because it's just like, that was me. Like I was the one with no friends and the friends I did have, I was the sixth wheel in the group and the one that only got invited to things if other people couldn't make it. I was the backup of the backup of the backup. And clearly I got the sense that it was a lot because they didn't want to be seen with me. And I was too nerdy and lame and didn't dress as well, things like that. And just to see Muriel, like I was trying so hard to be more like you 
to be normal. And it's like, that's all I ever tried to do as well. And it just hurt, hurts so hard. Like I wrote down, she's painfully relatable. Mm-hmm. But they, like, and they do this to her in public. And then when she gets emotional because they have been so callous to her and she's like fully sobbing at the table, they have the gall to be like, Muriel, you're embarrassing us. Like, Jesus Christ. Like for one second, just imagine how much you just embarrassed her in front of like all of these other people yeah. to be, you know, say these very hurtful, however true things. And then she has to process them like where she's at. Like that's not fair mm-hmm. either. And while she's on the island having this whole extravagant vacation and her parents think that she is doing great selling all these makeup kits and making all this money that could afford for her to go on this trip without her there, her parents are talking over dinner. And I think it's the, her mom turns and goes, she was the most useless one of all. Wasn't she bill? Like as if, well, look at her now. She's made something of herself even though she was the most useless one. And it's like just the way her parents, more so her dad, but also sometimes her mom talk about her is just, it's really hurtful and painful. Like they pulled nothing back in this movie. Some of the speeches the dad gives is just, it's like you said, it's hard to watch a lot of the time. Yeah. I mean, there's a number of scenes where he talks about the secretarial school and like, she can't even type and blah, blah, blah. And I think it's ridiculous for them to think that she's, the most useless one because all of her brothers and sisters are constantly only shown as like just being layabouts at home. Nobody else has a job either. Yeah. Like nobody else is doing anything to help their mom at home when she obviously needs it. Like why is Muriel the worst of the worst? The family life is uh, really something there. Mm -hmm. The dad is clearly also delusional. Like he's running for politics and all this and, Oh, he lost by just a few votes last time. And, He's consistently overacting and over um, compensating and talking about all these connections he has and all these people he knows. But it's kind of made clear that he's not quite as big a hotshot as he thinks. Mm-hmm. Uh, so after the whole um, island getaway scene, when she gets back to her house after uh, her mom confronts her and like, you didn't do what your dad says you did, Muriel, right? You wouldn't have taken all that money and and it's uh and muriel is is lying about it again because by this point we're very it's very clear that muriel is a habitual liar and is just building herself more walls and digging herself deeper and just keeps lying to her mom and then kind of knowing she's caught deer in the headlights runs back to the cab she just got out of after getting home and leaves her sydney just continually running away from her problems unable to face them just continuing forward trying to be this new person and afraid to face her past she ends up running away to sydney with uh where Rhonda leaves for as well and i, I can't remember if Rhonda was still in purpose fit or if she was already in sydney i don't think it's clear the taxi driver asks her where she wants to go and we don't get an answer, and then suddenly she's in Sydney. So it's either yeah. she went to Rhonda, and they made the decision to leave together, or Rhonda was already established there, and Muriel went there so that they could live together and be friends. It's not clear. Yeah. Just before we skip forward, though, I wanted to talk about the scene where Muriel comes back, and also a later scene that's related to that, or when she comes in and her mom, you know, is when you're, oh, your dad says that you did this, but you you wouldn't do that to us. Maybe I wrote the name on the check wrong. I think that's what she says yeah. later when Muriel eventually calls. But it's just like, despite all of this, it's like her mom is constantly trying to shift the blame from Muriel. She's always willing to like, 
you know, shield her from her father's ire when she's done something that is very clearly her fault. I think, yeah, a lot lot of that seems to be, too, that she's used to taking that blame from Bill as well. Like, Bill clearly clearly does not treat her well either. And so she's just used to being the one to blame as well. Like, even with the dress at the beginning, he says, you know, where did you get the money to buy it? She says, oh, mom gave it to me. And she goes, oh, did I? I don't think so. But it's very obvious from the outset that there's something happening with her mother where she's not fully there and she's confused about things. She's very susceptible to the suggestion of all of her children. But at the same time, like, it's a very soft heart for Muriel in particular. Yeah, it's a really heartbreaking scene when Muriel just starts to slowly walk away and her mom's saying, did you bring me anything from the vacation? Do you have any souvenirs for me? And it's just like kind of chasing her down and then slowly watches as she gets back in the taxi cab and drives away. Mm -hmm. Um, It's really sad. But then they get to Sydney and we get to start to see a lot more of Muriel kind of coming out of her shell. She gets a job at a VHS rental store right across the street from where Rhonda works at a dry cleaners. They have a little dinky flat together with almost no furniture. It's super adorable. She still has like her little ABBA posters all up because that is something I guess we didn't talk about a lot yet, but Muriel has this obsession with ABBA. Her friends kind of taunt her about it in the beginning. Her entire room is just plastered with ABBA posters. And she uses it as an escape mechanism, essentially, is what we're told, that, like, when she's feeling bad, she just goes in her room and puts on ABBA. And we see her do that a lot at the beginning of the movie, where she's just, that's her safe space. Mm -hmm. So she's still got some of her ABBA posters up there. But we get this, I think it might be a little later, but since we're talking about ABBA now, there's this great scene where she turns to Rhonda and basically says... Since we've moved to Sydney and been living together here, I haven't had to listen to ABBA once. Like, says, my life is as good as an ABBA song. My life is as good as an ABBA song, yeah. It's such a good scene, and unfortunately later we do see her when things start to break down. For the first time since near the beginning of the movie, she sticks in that ABBA set again and has to escape back into it. Uh, but things seem to be going pretty well. Um, she has this great encounter at the VHS store uh, with, name is Bryce. Uh, with Bryce. <laughs> yeah. yeah, this uh, guy who's apparently coming into the movie store a little bit too much, and we're given the assumption it's to see Muriel, asks her out on a date. There's this hilarious scene where he basically, she basically goes one second and then like phones up Rhonda, uh, or Rhonda, Rhonda phones, phones her, I think, yeah. maybe. Um, and Rhonda's just staring out the window, <laughs> and Muriel just goes, Can you look over at that dry cleaners over there, please? <laughs> he's like super confused and Rhonda's kind of checking him out and sussing him up and and they all go to this club together with Rhonda and looking for a date as well and it's this rowdy like electronica club and Bryce is this adorable sweet little nerdy boy and he's like clearly not very comfortable there Rhonda ends up taking two guys back home to the flat uh, and they are very very loudly having sex in the background when uh, Muriel and Bryce come back and eventually Muriel and Bryce on this uh, like a little beanbag chair start to kind of fool around a bit and Muriel as they uh, begin to unclothe just breaks out into hysterical laughter and just cannot stop laughing it's a very awkward scene I don't know how you felt about this one I kind of loved it because 
Like, laughter during sex is a good thing. And part of her laughter is because Bryce is so quick about it. He, like, turns off the TV and he, like, attaches himself to her face. And then all of a sudden he's, like, pulling off her shirt. And then he's, like, pulling at her pants. And it's her first time. So it's all very exciting to her. And the way that, you know, she's excited to be part of it. And he's very enthusiastic. And then it just gets a little bit crazy because she's wearing these pants that has zippers all over it. And, of course, their only furniture in the living room is, like, a giant beanbag chair. The zipper for which just happens to be next to Muriel's thigh. And so he thinks that he's unzipping Muriel's pants and actually unzips the beanbag chair, which results in the little foam beads going everywhere. And Muriel's crazed uh, scream laughter draws uh, Rhonda and her two bedmates out and the two guys are naked. And Muriel has obviously like never seen a penis before. And she's just like scream laughing at the fact that there's just please penises out in the open. It is so loud and so hilarious. And it just, it keeps escalating. It was pretty great. And I like right before they get into it too, Bryce looks at her because I have to tell you something. I'm a parking inspector. Oh my God. I love that line so much. Partly because I was expecting it to end differently. He's he's so (laughs) earnest and serious. Like I have to tell you something. And she's like, okay. And he's like, this is my job. And she's like, that's fine. Cause I was like, you have a job, so yeah. what's she going to complain about? And then the hilarity of this scene is immediately undercut by the seriousness of Rhonda collapsing and announcing that she can't feel her legs. And then we cut to an ambulance and then the hospital where we find out that Rhonda has a tumor that's pressing on her spine and she's got cancer and she needs immediate surgery. And I was so struck by this because obviously most of the media that you and I consume is of American in nature, but also we live in Canada. Like, to see... Like, you need to have an operation, like, tomorrow. And it's like, well, I guess, because socialized healthcare, where yeah. in a different kind of movie, it'd be like, you need, I mean, I guess it probably wouldn't be a big deal in a, a Hollywood movie either, because healthcare is not an issue in those types of movies either. Yeah, but well, in, in, Amer- in America, with how poor Rhonda and Muriel are, it would uh, not have gone like this. <laughs> Yeah. They definitely do not have health care if they were working in the States at these jobs. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's a really sad turn for the movie. Um, and at first, Muriel is really stepping up. And this is where they have, I think, that scene about my life is as good as an ABBA song now. And it's clear that Rhonda is so much a free spirit and really is just struggling with this so much. She hates having to rely on other people. It reminds her about having to be back in Porpoise Spit with her mom. And she just desperately pleads to uh, Muriel, like, promise me we're not going to go back to Porpoise Spit. We won't go back home. Yeah, she can't go back to live with her mother and, you know, need to rely on her mother for her care. This is also the the point in the movie where Muriel is um, starting to go around to all the bridal stores in Sydney, which is dubbed the City of Brides. There are many bridal stores. It's basically um, like New Westminster for us. There's a ton yeah. of bridal stores in New West. <laughs> the first one she goes into just to kind of look around, and then they ask her, oh, uh, when's the big day? She she just snaps into these lies. Like, she doesn't have to think about it. She is such a good liar. She's been doing it so much. She just goes September. And the whole thing we should mention as well, I don't think we talked about, is that when she meets Rhonda for the first time, Rhonda's asking her what she's doing there on vacation, and she says that she's getting engaged, I think. She basically makes up this whole fabrication that she's getting engaged to this man named Tim. And this is kind of why Rhonda thinks she's in Sydney, is to run away from Tim, who's threatened to kill her after she broke up with him. And that kind of plays into the pot later. But essentially, 
Muriel is going to all these bridal stores and lying about, just like she did with Rhonda, about having these weddings so she can try on these fabulous wedding gowns. And then they're taking pictures of her because she has this whole sob story about her mother or her sister or someone who has cancer who is in the hospital, kind of using Rhonda's newfound troubles, using part of that in her lies to get all these pictures. She's going from bridal store to bridal store, getting pictures of her in different wedding gowns and putting it all in this big wedding book. Because from the beginning of the movie, she's been obsessed with weddings. Yeah, when they are on holiday, what happens is Rhonda asks if she's Muriel Hislop, and Muriel says no because she's trying to not get caught out for what she's done. And Rhonda interprets this, oh, you're not Hislop, then you must have gotten married. And she immediately is just yes, like, yes. ah, yes, I'm engaged to this guy with a very boring, <laughs> very clearly made up name, Tim Sims. Tim Sims, yeah. And the confrontation that they have in the bridal store after uh, Rhonda is being picked up to go to physiotherapy. And while she's looking for a pack of cigarettes, she comes across this photo album that... Muriel has been putting together of all of these different dress pictures. And because of this story she had been told about Tim Sims, she assumes that Muriel has decided that she's going to marry this guy. And she happens to catch sight of her in a bridal store while she's in the taxi. She goes in and confronts her. And Muriel finally admits that Tim Sims is not a real thing, that she's not getting married, that it's really just about her wanting to get married, and that she correlates marriage to uh, a sign that she's changed into another person that somebody would want to marry her that she's not the same girl that she was from porpoise fit and since she moved to sydney she changes her name from muriel to mariel so instead of the mu it's ma and she has so much like internalized hatred for who she was in the small town that they came from that really comes to a head in the scene. It's very emotional. Yeah, there's when I lived in Porpoise Fit, no one looked at me. But when I moved to Sydney, Bryce asked me out and that proves that I've changed. and I'm not her anymore. And Ronnie goes, her? Muriel. Muriel Heslop. Stupid, fat, useless. I hate her. I'm never going back to being her again. Why can't it be me? Why can't I be the one? Just she's just convinced herself that this Mariel person she's made up is just going to let her escape from all these lies and all these things she's done and everything she hates about herself. And it just comes kind of crashing down in this moment on her. Mm -hmm. And so after this scene, it seems like her relationship with Rhonda has kind of fractured a little bit. And she starts looking through all of these like singles magazines and she finds a listing in the back of this magazine. Classified? Yeah. A classifieds listing. Um, specifically looking for a young Australian wife. That's basically the extent of the listing. And it's for this young guy. He's from South Africa. He's a talented swimmer. And they're trying to recruit him for the Australian Olympic team. But in order for him to be on the team and also to live legally in Australia, he has to marry. It's basically a green card wedding that they're looking to arrange. And Muriel, desperate to just get married to literally anybody so that she can say that she's done it. Yeah, she wants to prove that she is Mariel, that she has changed. Yeah. 
She calls the number and lucky her. She ends up being the one. The arrangement is that she gets $10,000 out of the deal and she has to live with this guy for a temporary basis. And to her luck, he's a pretty attractive person on top of it. Yeah, she's clearly taken with his beauty initially. And it's very clear that uh, it's not just about the money for her, that it's it's also not just about him for her. It's about getting married, a lot of it. But also she needs the money to stay in Sydney well, she also is supposed to be paying her father back for about the $12,000 that she stole from yeah. him. Throughout this whole thing, her parents do find out where she is. She has a scene where she goes to have dinner with her father in Sydney, and he basically says, uh, you're coming back in three weeks. Her, She calls her sister and her mom a, a few times. So they do know where she is at this point, even though she's run away. I love when she calls her mom and her mom says, we thought you'd become a prostitute or a drug addict. Like, it's amazing that parents immediately jump to like these two conclusions, like getting a regular job at like a video store or a coffee shop or something like that (laughs) is like the hardest thing possible. It's like immediately it's like you're either prostituting yourself or you're doing drugs like not working some minimum wage job just just get by, which is what people do every day. Yeah, and it's during that the dinner she has with her dad where her dad is broken record. It's basically just a repeat of everything he said throughout the whole movie. He's going on and on. There's even like it's beat for beat in some ways. I think it's intentional. It's like, oh there's Deidre, Deidre, come over here you know, Muriel. And it's like, it's just the same things playing out. The secretary school bit comes up again. I paid for those classes and she can't even type and all this. And the whole time Muriel is finally trying to stand up for herself a little bit more. And it's just screaming. It's not Muriel. It's Muriel. It's Muriel. And it just has this huge outburst essentially. And it's just, it's real sad. Yeah, the reason why her dad is in Sydney at this time is because he's being federally investigated for bribes because he works in municipal government. He's there giving testimony or something, um, and the house has been raided a few times as well, looking for evidence. And we also know that the reason why Deidre keeps showing up at convenient times is because for a long time, um, Bill and Deidre have been having an affair. And um, this is sort of coming to the point where that comes out for Muriel and also, you know, for the rest of the family as well. So we get the big climactic wedding scene Uh, Muriel has pushed uh, for a large church wedding rather than just She's obsessed yeah. with the wedding of Diana and Charles. She's like watches yeah, she's it on the TV. Ca- rewinding yeah, at it work. at work. They just wanted to, David and his manager just wanted to have like a quick, simple thing. But the manager is okay with this because it's going to make it look a bit more real and authentic and all that. Not just like a yeah. fake wedding. And so Muriel wants Rhonda to be her bridesmaid, but it's very clear at this point that there's a large fracture between them. Rhonda begrudgingly attends the wedding with her mom, and Muriel decides to, well, doesn't decide to, the terrible girls from the beginning of the movie, her friends, and the girl who got married at the very beginning, they come crawling back after all the news breaks of Muriel getting Muriel getting married to this big athlete. Yeah, it goes back to the two-facedness that I was talking about earlier, where, you know, they drop Muriel like a hot potato because she doesn't fit the aesthetic that they're trying to put forward, but as soon as there's even a whiff of like celebrity about her they immediately 
know, from crawling back. They need to be associated with her so that they can get a piece of the limelight. They all beg to be her bridesmaids, essentially. Also, the thing with Rhonda is because Muriel is getting married and moving out, it means that Rhonda can't afford to live in their apartment anymore. She's not capable of getting to and from her appointments and sort of taking care of herself. And as a result, she has to move back to Porpoise Spit with her mom, which is, as we've already talked about, like the one thing that she never, ever wanted to happen. And so she feels a sense of betrayal there, which is perfectly justified. Because as we know, the only reason why Muriel is going through with this is just because of her previous confession about how she's just wanted to get married and that marriage is the symbol of change for her, even though it's very clear to Rhonda that that's not the case. Mm -hmm. And there's this hilarious uh, little bit of banter between Rhonda and the new bridesmaids where one of them, uh, they, they ask her, Rhonda, what happened? She goes, I had cancer, it's all right. They cut it out because she's in the wheelchair, obviously. And she, uh, one of them, Cheryl, looks down and goes, you were so full of life. She just looks up, I'm not dead, Cheryl. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, yeah. Those girls are so ridiculous. One thing about the wedding is, like, have you ever seen a room of people with more sour faces. Like Muriel is coming down the aisle. They're in a big Catholic church. There's lots of people there. She's in this gorgeous wedding dress. And she is it's it's like, really it gorgeous. is literally the best day of her life. She's so excited. And like not one single person yeah. like smiles or shows any excitement or anything as she's coming down the aisle. And like even David, the guy that she's marrying, like has to be prompted so many times by the priest to like say the things and then like there's a moment where yeah we're not sure if he's actually going to say i do and like go through with it and then when he's told you know you can kiss the bride he just like gives muriel a very quick peck on the cheek there's a lot of interesting juxtaposition between muriel's attitude to what's going on and like everything else that's actually happening in that scene yeah, it's it's a really good scene. I first of all, I love the dress. Like I was surprised at how well the fashion of this dress held up too. It wasn't like a Princess Diana dress where it's like honestly looking at that dress now, it's like okay, well, uh, I don't know. But like the little head thing she had on with the veil, the little it was almost like a little mm-hmm. crown. It's just a really gorgeous dress, and Muriel is just beaming. Like Tony Collette, I know uh, watching a video on YouTube recently, kind of talking about Tony Collette. One thing that's mentioned about her is that she is such an expressive actor with her face and like the emotion she can tell just with her face is incredible. Like the beaming, radiating smile she has this whole scene is incredible. Like it is so large, it looks like a comic. Like it doesn't look real. The way she can contort her face into this beaming smile, she holds it the whole time. Like she's walking down the aisle as Abba's I Do, I Do, I Do is playing, which is great. Perfect wedding song. I would do that too, Muriel. <laughs> um, and it's really sad too, because like you're saying, like everyone else around her is not reacting the way she's looking and feeling. I mean, her dad literally says, she's all yours, mate, when he hands her off and then just like immediately yeah. turns on his heel and leaves. And her mom walks in late and takes a seat at the back, has this massive gift for her. And Muriel doesn't even look her direction as she's walking out of the church. Like, and her mom just starts to sob essentially because Muriel is so not, she's not paying attention to anyone else here. Not even David really. Like David gives her this little peck on the cheek and she barely even cares or notices. She's so wrapped up in everything else. Like it wasn't a kiss the bride moment, but she doesn't care. Like she's just, it's not about him. It's about the spectacle. It's about everything else. Right. Yeah. 
so she's so oblivious to her own mother and Rhonda and everyone really. And it's, uh, it's really sad. And it ends in this moment where she finally kind of snaps out of it a little bit and sees Rhonda, one of the little wheelchair wheels poking around the corner, goes over to Rhonda and they have this uh, heartbreaking conversation where essentially Muriel still is just, she's just not getting it. And she's Rhonda basically tells her like this Muriel person you're trying to be and like, you're fooling yourself. Yeah. She basically confirms, yeah, you've changed. And the new person you are sucks. Yeah. And Muriel thinks by buying a plane ticket for her and her mom to fly back to porpoise spit, that she's being a good friend or something. And it's, it's, she's just so caught up in her own things here. That, that she's... entire exchange where, you know, Ron is like, Oh yeah. Mom and I are taking the bus back to porpoise spit tonight. And Muriel goes, I don't want you to initially. You're like, oh, that, you know, yeah. she's, I don't want you to go back to Porpoise Spit. But then she clarifies, oh, I don't want you to take the bus. I bought you guys some plane tickets. And like, Rhonda is literally, are you fucking kidding me? And she, yeah. you know, she tells Muriel to like, go to hell. And I don't blame her because, you know, you literally put your friend in their absolute worst nightmare situation. And then the way that you raise your response to this makes it sound like you don't want them to leave at all. But in reality, you're still so wrapped up in your own bullshit that... It's like, oh, well, I don't want you to, like, not go in comfort. So I got you airplanes, like, have a safe trip. Honest to God, if if you or anybody else did that to me, I would respond in a similar fashion. Be like, honestly, like, fuck you. Yeah. It's really heartbreaking because we contrasted to the moments where you see Muriel saying to Rhonda, like, I'm going to help you get better. Like, she's she's really helping, pushing Rhonda to, to walk again and during the rehabilitation and basically saying, like, there's just all these great moments between them. And then it's completely flipped here and there's none of that left. And Rhonda's just staring at her like, I have no clue who you are anymore. And it's just in in Muriel's obsession with getting married and changing herself to be somebody, she's just completely missed the point that she was already. Like she'd already made it. Like she'd reached that point already, but she didn't even see it. Another thing about the wedding is poor Bryce, who clearly still, like, holds the torch for Muriel and who, you know, had his one chance before things kind of immediately went sideways, is sitting in the audience watching this wedding happen and just looks so morose over the fact that she's marrying this guy. You know, he never really had an opportunity to, like, have a relationship with her. And she's basically treating him like, well, she's not really treating him like anything. He's basically just another casualty in Muriel just doing what she needs to to meet her own aims yeah and then shortly after the wedding muriel's father leaves her mother for good and he says that he wants a divorce and muriel gets a phone call that says that her mom has died and she needs to come home and the story that she's told when she arrives is that her mom had a heart attack but her sister tells her later that when she found the body, there were sleeping pills next to it. And that her dad has basically changed the story because he doesn't want people to know. And everything about Betty Heslop is so sad and tragic. It's like she's always on the outside of every scene. And people are yelling at her from another room. She's absent-minded just kind of never fully there. And, you know, nobody is really paying her sufficient attention. Sorry, before the divorce part, um, her mom is at the store and she picks up a pair of sandals to replace her shoes and she forgets to pay for them. And I I was a little bit annoyed about this. The same woman who sees Muriel steal the dress witnesses the theft of these shoes, however accidental, and basically, like, calls the cops on her and it's like this woman needs to like 
keep your nose out of it. Also, these shoes were like maybe $10. Like, who cares? Literally, like a pair of sandals. Yeah. And she could have like gone back after the fact and been like, oh, I forgot to pay for these. Let me pay for them now. Like, it's a whole thing. But she's like, she sees her do it. And then she's like watching her while she's in line paying. Like, is she going to say something about the shoes? Is she going to pay for the shoes? While Betty is shopping, they keep cutting down to her shoes. She is wearing her little heels and like she's blisters and she's clearly in a lot of pain. Mm -hmm. And some of that, I think, is just that it's it's representative of like this image she's trying to keep up for her husband. And everything she does is for him. And it's like she's clearly wearing these shoes to like look nice and presentable. And she just has a moment where she can't take it anymore. Like her shoes hurt too much. Mm -hmm. So she just grabs some like foam sandal things off the shelf and like puts them on. And you see this sigh of relief. But the thing is, she's so absent minded and we're led to believe it's for some sort of mental health reasons that she's not fully there anymore. She keeps blanking out all the time and she just doesn't remember to pay for them. And it's clearly like an accident. And she has this breakdown over it. Bill is able to get her off because he's Bill, but confronts her about it at the house and basically says like, I want a divorce. Like you people are embarrassing me. None of you are good enough. I'm going to go marry Deidre. We've been having an affair. And she just snaps and is just saying like, it's not my fault. Like I, I just didn't remember. And she has so much to take care of at the house and she's not having any yeah. help from any of the kids or from Bill. And it's just, is really causing a problem for her. And he doesn't give a shit. He's never cared. Yeah. And he leaves. And then shortly after, you know, she takes her own life. And then the other thing too is, you know, Muriel comes back and she's, outstanding on the porch and she's looking down at where the clothes hanger is for drying clothes outside and it's just like charred black and i didn't notice that first until she asks what happened and her sister says oh mom burned it before she killed herself because she was tired of waiting for you know the one brother to cut the grass like to do anything around the house that would be useful yeah and we have scenes before where the brother is just like dicking around on the grass right in that same spot and just like kind of being stupid and not helping yeah. and it's like almost the exact same shot as they're looking down upon it now it's all blackened and charred mm -hmm. on a not a serious note it reminded me a little bit of jenny's wedding and the <laughs> happy people don't have dead grass you know what if we're gonna bring like, that in well, as a theory like clearly she's not a happy I person mean, if she had to literally yeah. burn the entire backyard grass because she was so unhappy if she was happy maybe that the happy people don't have dead grass theory is correct it gets to the funeral scene then and this is kind of the breaking point for muriel where she begins to realize what she's done and that she can't keep lying anymore. Uh, I forget the exact moment when she runs out during the funeral. Her dad is talking to her about how significant it is that the prime minister wrote a letter to him about how sorry he is about what happened. And like, doesn't that just prove how important he is? Like nobody else is getting a letter from the prime minister, you know, with their condolences, blah, blah, blah. And she just realizes in that moment that like, she's just like her father where the outside approval is all that she's chasing after and that it doesn't mean anything ultimately. It's kind of the the beginning of the end. Her, her mother's death is really just forcing her to look at her own life. And it's that wake up call really for her. I also really hated when she was talking to Deidre and she's like, oh, well, you know, I forget what the exact wording was, but she basically suggests that her mother's death like had a positive impact on like her father yeah. in some way. So, and she says, uh, your mother's 
life was for something. And I was like, fuck you, Deidre. Like somebody, people's lives don't have to have purpose. You know, like you live and you die and it doesn't have to benefit another person for it to be meaningful. Yeah. Oh yeah. And the whole idea that like her mom dying was like the one good thing she could do essentially is what she was saying. It was, yeah, it was really terrible. And after this, we get the scene where Muriel goes running back to David, who's there with her at the funeral and just breaks down if she knew that he was at the funeral i think she went outside and she was surprised to see him there i was surprised to see him there i mean i think the idea was that he was just standing outside the whole time but they'd gone together because they're still keeping up the charade your husband would go to your mom's funeral with you especially if you're trying to keep up the whole green card thing i think i think he just didn't want to go inside um but they end up going back to their hotel together and muriel just breaks down and her and david for the first time after being so cold to each other and David's really been standoffish and they've had this weird, rocky relationship and they finally have this like moment of connection kind of where and they end up having sex that night and in the morning Muriel wakes up and it's kind of like everything's a little bit clearer now. And she basically says, you don't love me. I don't love you. Why are we doing this? Like, why am I, I keep lying to everyone. And I need to start telling the truth. And basically says like, I'm going to break it off between us. I have to start being truthful. And I was a little shocked at how well David took that. Like he seemed to agree. Like they've been kissing and making out and they had sex and everything. And then Miro goes like, well, you don't really like me though, do you? And he goes, well, no. <laughs> It was kind of funny. The scene where they have sex is like, it isn't until she shows some legitimate vulnerability that he seems to have any sort of actual attraction to her. Because when she first meets him and the coach at the swimming pool, you know, she seems to fit all of the things that they need. And David is like, well, like, what about this other girl that we met? You know, like he's immediately having second thoughts and he seems to sort of not be interested in even putting up the pretense of a relationship with Muriel and be like, this is my room. This is your room. Like we're not doing the thing at all. And it's really not until this moment that he finds anything attractive about her. So it was kind of a weird thing. Like it was a sweet scene, but also just the circumstances for him to finally come around to her. Just, I don't know. It was interesting to me that they, they were going to take four months at least to keep up the charade basically before I think that was the, the time out given before they could kind of break things yeah. off. And it's clearly not been very long. And so he's potentially going to have to go back, maybe not get to compete. I think it's kind of the implication here. It's like a big thing that Muriel's basically saying like, Hey, like I need to break this off. I need to be truthful. And he realizes that and is very accepting of it. And it was sweet. And I was just kind of like, Oh wow. Like this has some big implications though for you. <laughs> Yeah, I was definitely surprised with his response to it because, like, even when they get married, she comments on the fact that his parents weren't at the wedding, but he goes uh, in kind of a cold way. We're like, well, you know, they paid for it. And also, you know, they paid her a chunk of money for her to marry him in the first place. And of course, she offers to return the money to him as well, since that she's not keeping her end of the deal. And he tells her that she doesn't need to, that it's hers. So he definitely has had a change of heart or his response to the situation we haven't really had like a clear indication of sort of what he's been feeling this whole time i i really like the whole ending of this movie like very quickly muriel starts to try and right a lot of these wrongs and undo a lot of these lies she's done she gives some of that wedding money back to her dad to repay him as much as she can and he's kind of wanting her to just obviously come back to the house and help out and like take care of the kids and she basically goes like 
no, that's your job. Like you need to take care of your if own children. Parent, you I'm going back to Sydney. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it was a great moment where she finally like stands up to her dad and for his sake, like he actually listens and accepts it essentially. Like clearly isn't super happy about it, but I think he's beginning to somewhat realize that he needs to take some ownership as well. Uh, and it's just one of those things where like when everyone's actually things are out in the open and you're communicating, it just like things happen. Like <laughs> people can be receptive if you just openly communicate. Funny how that works. Problems resolve themselves when you talk about it. He's clearly not a changed man or a great or anything. Um, I think at this point, he's not in a great place either. Deidre clearly wasn't wanting to be the mom to all these kids. So she's not super happy. He's, I think, lost his job. I mean, it's not like they're children. Like, they're literally there all There is adults. at least one child. To... There was at least one child. At the very least, they're like a very old teenager. One of them looked like 12. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I remember at the beginning. But yes. Yeah, but I mean, one child is whatever. But, it's... you know, they've got basically three adult children who just need to, you know, take responsibility for their lives. It's presented to us that it's not what Deidre was buying into, and she's not happy about it is kind of the assumption <laughs> well shockingly when you have an affair with yeah. somebody who already has a family you don't have the option to opt out yeah. of any children that they might have like that's not part of the deal and he's lost his job on city council as well and so he's being kind of humbled by everything too which is good he deserves that mm -hmm. uh, and then we get the final scene is so good where Muriel finally goes back for Rhonda, essentially. And we see Rhonda's in her home with her mom and uh, the bitchy girls. And we get Muriel showing up and basically saying, like, hey, let's go back to Sydney. And we need to talk about the scene with the bitchy girls, though, oh, before we talk about the final scene. Before Muriel because, shows up, yes. <laughs> yeah, so there's... The girl that Tanya thinks is having an affair with her husband when they dump Muriel as a friend, I forget what her name is. You know, she's become friends with this girl and she says, well, we all make mistakes. And she reveals that she's like, I've also been, you know, sucking her husband's cock. So, oh, Rose Biggs, that's the one. And, you know, it's like, oh, well, we all make mistakes and... Like, it's fine. And we also find out that she's going to give Chuck another chance for whatever reason. There's no justification for that. If he's cheated on you on your literal wedding day, like, just let the relationship die. And it's just, like, such a hilarious scene because, you know, these girls are so about status and, like, I'm married and I'm a bride, I'm beautiful and blah, blah, blah. But so much of their personality and even their physical appearance sometimes is so ugly. Like, when Muriel comes in and they're leaving and Rhonda goes, she says, goodbye, you cocksuckers or something. And Tanya comes, like, raging out of the house. She says, you can't say that to me. I'm a bride. But she looks, like, wild and, like, so hideous. Like, her face is all contorted while she's saying this. So it's another example of the hilarious juxtaposition of the text and the visual and it's just it's great i love that these bitchy girls all get you know their comeuppance because their standards are so low and on a sliding scale according to what works for them yeah and the scene where muriel comes back and basically says like i'm no longer with david i'm going back to sydney do you want to come with me essentially kind of thing and the mom and the friends are just like oh why why like oh we knew it wouldn't last with david and like and they're all kind of it's like why would she go back at all type of thing and then there's this kind of moment where they where Rhonda and 
Muriel kind of look at each other and Rhonda just breaks it into a smile and goes, yeah, like, and it's absolutely wonderful. And then it's the whole thing yeah. screaming like, yep. So bye, goodbye cocksuckers. And like, sorry, mom, but you're crazy. And they jump in the cab together. And as everyone's screaming at them, drive off and we get this extended scene as they drive through porpoise spit and they just start saying, you know, goodbye, like screaming out like, goodbye beach, goodbye mall. And they're just, they look at each other and just scream, goodbye, Parvis, spit. And you see Tony Collette similar from the wedding. Her big smile comes back, but this time it's not for something so fake and contrived. It's not for something she thinks is going to make her happy. But, like, she knows this is what she should be smiling about. Like, this is, she's Muriel. She doesn't have to pretend anymore. She shed all this baggage. And the funny thing is she's basically just going right back to the point she was in in the middle of the movie. It's just this time without the lies, which she knows she didn't need in the first place because her and Rhonda were living their best life already. Like, she didn't need the ABBA song then. Yeah, she's leaving Corpus um, Spit this time uh, on her own terms as opposed to running from a problem of her own creation that she's not capable yeah. of facing. Yeah, the whole thing is played over Dancing Queen as well, which is amazing. It's the, the soundtrack with all the Evan. It is just great, and it's used so well. And it's just like that swelling, the swelling of the music and of them looking out on the city as they're leaving, as the sign says, uh, come back soon to Porpoise Spit or whatnot, or you're you're leaving Porpoise Spit or whatever it says. It's uh, it's one of those endings that always gets me. It's like, uh, I think I even went back and like watched just the ending on YouTube after because it's so feel good. And it just gives you hope too that like, like I still live in a town I'd like to get out of at some point. And it's one of those things where it's like, gives you hope. Yeah, I definitely related to, you know, the screaming goodbye to the place that you're from. If I... I don't know where, but if I ever moved from here, I feel like I would probably have a similar reaction. For sure. So what would you give this movie on our ketchup scale? Is this one perfect as is? Could it use a little more ketchup or would you douse it? Uh, It's definitely perfect as is. Um, I don't think there's like anything about the narrative that needs fixing. It's a pretty solid story. All of the characters feel more or less, you know, well-rounded, fleshed out as much as they can be for the parts that they play. Yeah, I would agree. This one for me is definitely a perfect as is. It's one I always seem to go back to. It's one of those classics that uh, seems to always maybe slip under the radar a little bit. It's one of those cult classics, I think. It's just so beloved. And I was recently watching 25th anniversary thing about it with Tony Collette talking about how much of an impact it's had on her and how like she's been carrying around this kind of character with her and just watching it again for the first time in a long time how much she reconnected with it and it's one of those things I always reconnect with when I watch it definitely perfect as is for me that's it for us this episode join us again next time when we catch up on more movies with each other for updates on future episodes and other news follow us on Twitter Facebook and Instagram at movie catch up pod